The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Nehemiah chapter number two is where we'll be today. Nehemiah chapter number two. Welcome on Daylight Savings Time. All right. We're so glad each and every one of you could be here today. And uh, I was reading an article this week that was written to pastors and they've done some studies and uh, Daylight Savings is one of the least attended Sundays of the entire year. And uh, so I say all that to say, man, congratulations for being in church today. All right. That is awesome. And uh, I'm so glad that you were able to make it. And uh, we're looking forward to what God's going to do here in our hearts and lives as we continue through our series, uh, The God Who Builds. Nehemiah, we're going verse by verse, just studying this particular passage of Scripture. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter number 2. We're going to begin reading in verse number 9 in just a moment. But for those of you who are kind of catching up with us, let me give you a little bit of background here. We're currently doing the series, The God Who Builds, as we're studying the book of Nehemiah verse by verse. Nehemiah, the name in which the book is named after, was the governor of Jerusalem during some very difficult times in the nation of Israel's history. And yet even in the midst of these changing and challenging times, uh, God did some incredible things through these people's lives. When we came to Nehemiah chapter number one, Nehemiah was serving in King Artaxerxes' castle as literally his cupbearer, or what we may refer to today as his butler, all right? He was a very close associate with King uh, Artaxerxes. And one day, Nehemiah's brother traveled all the way from Jerusalem to Shushan, where Nehemiah was working, and began to tell him about what was taking place in Jerusalem. And this was the land of his fathers, the land of his forefathers. And when Nehemiah got the news of what had taken place in Jerusalem, that the walls were broken down, that the gates had been burned with fire, he literally just got so burdened for his city. He got burdened for the people because they were living under much reproach. And it says for days, literally, he began to pray. He just began to weep. He began to fast. And during those days, literally something kind of snapped inside of his soul. Something snapped in his heart. And uh, honestly, what what I'm going to call it and what we're going to talk about a little bit today is it literally what started to well up in his soul was this literally this holy discontentment. It was it was as if something wasn't right in the world. And this thing began to stir up in his heart to the point that, man, he felt, man, he started to make plans and he started preparing about what he could do. But he, he knew he would need King Artaxerxes permission now. King Artaxerxes, this guy, it was a little bit, honestly, he was crazy. I mean, kind of a couple French fries short of a Happy Meal, we could say. I mean, this guy just, he didn't have it all together. In fact, on on one occasion, uh, when the river that ran through Shushan overflowed, it literally wiped out one of the bridges. And so Artaxerxes literally had the river flogged and beaten. What kind of crazy person beats a river for overflowing? But that's what he did. One day, uh, one of his soldiers asked if he could be removed from the army. And uh, Artaxerxes said, sure. So he cut him in half and ran two chariots over him and said, you're excused from the army. (laughs) 
This is the kind of crazy man that Artaxerxes was. And so Nehemiah knew he was going to have to approach this man and ask him for a leave of absence. And the Bible says when Artaxerxes asked him how he was doing, the Bible says he got, he got scared. Nehemiah got nervous. You can understand why. The last time this happened, a man got chopped in half. But Nehemiah literally put his, his career on the line. He literally put his life on on the line. He risked it all for this thing that God was calling him to because this holy discontentment that he was experiencing in his soul was so intense and it was so strong that he literally was willing to step out by faith and put his life on the line in order to do what God was drawing him out to do. And so in this series, our theme is simply this, that God often does his greatest building, as we're going to see in the city of Jerusalem, at the very place of our most agonizing brokenness. And just like the city of Jerusalem was totally broken down, we're going to see how God uses this theme of redemption, this theme of restoration to remind the people of Israel that God wants to do a renewing work, not just physically in a city, but he wants to do it spiritually in the lives of individuals there, not not just back 2,500 years ago, but in our lives here even today. So on your way into the auditorium, you should have received a service program that you can use to follow along through the Bible study this morning. If you're visiting with us, there's a connection card inside of that uh, uh, program. We'll hope you fill that out. We'd love to get you some more information about things coming up at the church. And uh, for those of you who are physically able, I want to invite you to stand as we read from our text today, Nehemiah chapter number 2 beginning in verse number uh, 8, or the end of verse number 8 here. The Bible says at the end of verse 8, And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had set captains of the army and horsemen with me. Let me pause there for just a second. This is awesome. Remember what Nehemiah asked for? He asked for letters. Nehemiah had asked for, you know, some resources, but notice here, uh, the king had given him even more than he asked for. It says here, now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with him. This just goes to show you the testimony that Nehemiah had with a very pagan king. Uh, You can tell that he had a good testimony, and so the king literally gives him more than he asks for. Notice verse 10, when Senballat the Hornite and Tobiah the servant and the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And now notice he doesn't really get to work after three days. He would have been traveling somewhere around uh, three months by the time he gets here. And, and literally he just rests for a few days. And, and let me just remind you of this. Um, it's okay every once in a while just to rest. All right, I know we go through seasons that are busy and we go through seasons that are intense and, and sometimes we just need to rest and that's what Nehemiah does for a couple of days. He just, he rests. Notice verse 12. Then I arose in the night and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Remember this holy discontentment that he was experiencing. He's not going to, he didn't share it at this point with anybody. Neither told our any man what my God had put in my heart to do. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. Verse 13. And I went out by night 
by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. I want to speak today simply on this subject of the God who builds through a holy discontentment. How does God use this holy discontentment to further his work in the world in which we live? And that's what we're going to unpack here a little bit today, shall we pray? Dear gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace that is evident upon our lives. Lord, I pray that you would continue just to shower us with your mercy, Lord. And we thank you that you make it possible for us to literally enter in uh, to your presence through what is made possible in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask today that you would, from your word, reveal to us how a holy discontentment can be used for your glory and for your honor. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Blake Mikowski was a uh, kind of an ordinary kind of a guy, you know, and uh, on one particular occasion, we might even have a picture of him somewhere, uh, he was going down to Argentina. He decided he was going to get some friends together, and they were going to go play polo, and so he left the States, went down to Argentina, and uh, just began to basically vacation, have some fun, and And while he was there, he had the opportunity of visiting some villages kind of outside the main areas of Buenos Aires and some of the larger cities. And as he was there, he noticed that in the villages, many of the children didn't have shoes. In fact, most of them didn't have shoes uh, to the degree that their feet would be cut up and bruised. And and many of them even had a disease because they would walk on ground that was kind of uh, infected. And this infection would get into their feet and the moss and stuff literally would start giving them disease that would begin to run up their leg and Blake began to notice this and as he saw it you know he thought man we gotta gotta do something he noticed there was in one particular village there was a group that was doing a uh, shoe drive and they brought some shoes but the shoes were just incredibly old you know a lot of them uh, had holes in them you know they didn't fit the kids very well Uh, but at least this group was trying to do something to help these kids out and and Blake started to think to himself you know there's got to be there's got to be something that I can do uh, to help these kids out and so he went and he found a place that could construct this Jesus really, really inexpensive shoes that were kind of native to the Argentinian area, area. and uh, he went and made 250 of these shoes and brought them back to these villages and literally began to put these shoes on these kids, and he was excited about it, and 250, though, would cost a certain amount of money, and he didn't know how he was going to raise the money, and then all of a sudden, he had this idea. It was a crazy idea. Uh, Some might even say it was kind of a a vision he had in order to do something big, and what he decided to do is to start a shoe company. Uh, He named that shoe company Tom's Shoes, and his vision was simply this, that he would sell shoes to people in the United States, and for every pair of shoes that was bought, he would use that money then to make another pair of shoes that he would give to one of these children in these villages. It was like a a one-for-one type thing. 
Uh, the day he started his company, he was able to get 180 American pairs of shoes for his website. And he thought, I'm gonna, if I could sell 180 shoes, that'd be awesome. I'd be able to take 180 shoes, take them back to Argentina, and put shoes on these kids' feet. Well, the day he launched his website, uh, the New York Times picked up the story, heard about it. And on his first day, he sold 2,200 pairs of shoes in one day. And he thought to himself... I got to make some more shoes, <laughs> you know, uh, it doesn't, wasn't going to have enough there. Uh, it wasn't long, literally within a year or two, by uh, six months, they had already sold 10,000 shoes. And six months later, he went and took 10,000 shoes down to Argentina and began to be able to put shoes on all of these kids' feet. Well, it grew by 2010, a couple of years later, he had given away a million pairs of shoes. And now it wasn't just in Argentina. He was heading to Ethiopia. He was going down to South Africa, giving away shoe after shoe after shoe. Literally, it got so much to where literally he had to quit all of his roles at his shoe company, Tom's. And basically, all he did full time was literally give the shoes away because that's all he had time for. He would travel, give the shoes away, and the sales just kept increasing here in the States to the point that uh, end of 2016, he had sold over 50 million pairs of shoes, thus giving away another 50 million pairs of shoes. So in light of this, I'm actually wearing my Tom shoes. I've got a pair myself uh, right there, all right? So I thought I'd wear them today, you know, in light of the illustration. And uh, when we bought these, there was a pair of shoes that was made and then given away to one of these countries. These shoes have been given away in 70 different countries around the world. He tells reporters how on the way home from that original trip in Argentina, he saw the need and he just thought to himself, somebody's got to do something about this. Our theme for today's message is simply this. There's nothing really more inspiring than a person who transforms some broken thing in the world that they just can't stand into a kind of positive energy that advances kingdom restoration among humanity. You see, just like Nehemiah had a holy discontentment, Blake also experienced a very real holy discontentment. Something wasn't right in the world. And so today I want to unpack this idea of what happens when a holy discontentment kind of spurs up in our hearts and in our lives. I want you to see, notice verse number 11 You'll in our text here. Uh, the Bible says here, let's, we'll start here in uh, verse number t- uh, 10, uh, verse 9. Then I came to the governors beyond the river it says in verse 9 in verse 11 it says so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days I want you to see the first thing that happens when a biblical true spirit filled holy discontentment kind of grapples our soul we see first of all a holy discontentment will displace us it will displace us you say what do you mean by that Nehemiah's life was pretty comfortable 
He got to live in the palace at Shushan. He had a comfy job. He was well-connected, highly esteemed. Here everything was going well, but all of a sudden he heard about something that was happening hundreds of miles away, and just this holy discontentment started stirring up in his heart to the place where he literally could not stay where he was at. He literally had to go, and I want to say to you, a holy discontentment at times will destroy displace us experiencing God and really experiencing his grace has a simple but challenging message and that is this find out where God is at work and join him there that was Henry Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God. See, most of us, we want to go to God and say, God, I want to do this, and God, I want to do that. Will you come to where I want to work and do what I want you to do? And Henry Blackaby says, experiencing God is very different. It's about having a sense of a wonder, a sense of looking as to where God is working, where God is moving, and then going in a spirit of surrender to where God is working and yielding and surrendering yourself in that place. James 4 says, draw nigh to me. I'll draw nigh to you. Now, I want to remind you that God's will is not necessarily a specific location. And and this can confuse us sometimes. I'll get young people asking me, what's God's will for my life? Does he want me to live in this place? Does he want me to go to that college? Does he want me to do those things? When we talk about a holy discontentment displacing us, we're not necessarily talking about a specific location, but rather we are talking about a state of being. And that state of being is being in a state of being spirit-filled, where the joy of the Lord is evident in your life and the Peace of God is resting upon you and unconditional love can flow in and through your life. This is how you know if you're in the center of God's will. You know because the fruit of the Spirit is radiating from your life. And so God's will is not necessarily moving to a specific location, but rather it's a specific state of being, specifically the fruit of the Spirit. It might be for some of you today, it's not that God wants you to move across the world. It might be that he wants you to move your spirit. He wants you to yield your spirit, surrender your spirit to say, God, where I am, I want you to change. I want you to move my peace. I want you to, I want you to help me experience grace. I, I want to experience the fruit of the spirit. Maybe it's your attitude that needs to move. It's your disposition that needs to move. It's your state of being that needs to move. But I will say this, when there is an authentic, God-given, holy discontentment, it will move you. It'll change you. It'll make an impact. I'm so thankful that Jesus Christ saw, when he saw the brokenness that existed in the world, that he was willing to come to this earth. He was willing to be moved. He was willing to be displaced, if we can phrase it that way, to bring restoration and redemption to humanity. And since Jesus Christ was willing to do that on our behalf, since he was willing to do it for us, can I say this? As the Spirit of God resides in you, not only does he want you to experience that, he wants to do that through you. A holy discontentment will displace us. Let's go to the 
end of verse 10, it says, When Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant of the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly. I want you to see number two, a holy discontentment will bring about opposition. We talked about Sambalad and Tobiah last week, and since we kind of parked it there, we won't spend a ton of time there this morning. But I do want to remind you, when you're given a God-given just kind of holy discontentment in your life, mark it down, there will be opposition. Nehemiah experienced opposition in regards to his holy discontentment. If, if you read some of Blake's stories when it comes to Tom's shoes, he has experienced incredible amount of opposition. There were people who told him, you can't compete with Nike. You can't compete with Reebok. How are you supposed that, that's, that's impossible. He has other critics who tell him, well, giving these shoes to kids in third world country is just promoting a materialistic consumerism in those places. <laughs> he has his critics. Nehemiah had his critics. And when you allow a holy discontentment to really move you and affect you, you'll have your critics as well. Albert Einstein said this. He said, great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. That's how life works. But I want to I remind you of this, and I want you to remember Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. At the end of the day, your neighbor is not your opponent. It's not your opposition. Your coworker is not your opponent. Those people who are pushing back against your holy discontentment, they're not your opponent. We wrestle against in a spiritual realm. And there is an enemy, but it's not your spouse. <laughs> There's an enemy, but it's not that person you think it is. You see, there's a spiritual realm, and that spiritual realm is fighting against any force, any experience that would try to bring restoration and redemption to the, and healing to the brokenness that exists in our world. A holy discontent will cause here, it will bring about opposition. If, if Jesus experienced opposition with that being moved because of that holy discontentment, just mark it down. You're going to experience some opposition as well. We're not better than our master. Let's keep reading. Notice the end of verse number 10. It says here, why were they grieved? Why were these men grieved? Why were they going to oppose him? Well, the Bible says right here, it grieved them exceedingly because there was a man, speaking of Nehemiah, who was come to seek the welfare of the children of Israel, which brings us here to our third point, and that's simply this. A holy discontentment will cause us to seek the welfare of other people. A holy discontentment will cause us to seek the welfare of other people. Uh, How do you know the difference between Holy discontentment and carnal discontentment. (laughs) Let me give you just a real brief way to know the difference. Uh, Holy discontentment is usually focused on somebody else. A carnal discontentment is usually focused on yourself. You're discontent because you don't have enough money. You're discontent because not enough people are giving you recognition or appreciation. 
because you don't have the, you know, whatever, you fill in the blank. A a carnal discontentment is me-focused. A holy discontentment is others-focused. Whether it be Blake, whether it be Nehemiah, the reason that it was holy in nature is because it was completely focused on someone else. Else, and that's how you know if it's a holy discontentment or not. Philippians chapter number two, verse four reminds us look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This only is possible when you get gripped with what Jesus Christ was willing to do for you. When you realize that Jesus Christ came to this earth to seek our welfare. There was nothing in it for him. The only thing that Christ had to look forward to was the cross of Calvary. And yet he came to this earth. He went to the cross. He died. Why? For your sake. For my sake. For our welfare. And as our master, he gives us an example that we could follow in his steps. And he reminds us not to look on our own welfare. Not to look on our own things. But when we get consumed and focused on what Christ has done for us, then it overflows and now all of a sudden because we know Christ has our back we don't have to guard our back anymore because he's got us covered we don't have to cover ourselves because he's taking care of us we are liberated and free to simply take care of others knowing that he's already taking care of us He's already got our back. And when we really believe that, and when we really trust that, and when we have confidence in that reality, it liberates us and frees us to seek the welfare of others, knowing in confidence that our welfare is already taken care of. Because that's the goodness of Christ toward us. I love this definition of compassion. Somebody once said compassion is this. Compassion is your hurt in my heart. Your hurt in my heart. And it goes on. And my help in your hurt. My help in your hurt. Are we experiencing and extending the compassion of Christ? Aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ felt your hurt in his heart? And that he put his help in your hurt? As we focus on that, as we meditate on that, as we ruminate on it, it should stir something in our heart that then wants to see that extended and overflowed toward the people around us. Nehemiah had just this holy discontentment. There was something wrong in his world. There was something that just didn't sit right with him. But it stirred him to a place, literally. It stirred him and it moved him. Yes, it brought about opposition, but it caused him to seek the welfare of other people. Let's keep reading. Notice verse number 11. 
It says, so I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Now, I'll say this real quick. Shushan to Jerusalem, uh, that trip, all right, that we see here in verse number 11, it just says, I came. That trip could have taken upwards to three months. You say, uh, how do you know three months? Well, if we kind of do a little bit of uh, study here, you'll find that the walls were completed by the month of Elu. All right, is what the scriptures tell us. It took about 52 days to build these walls, and that would correspond to our month of September, all right, just to do a little math to kind of reverse engineer. That means there was five months from the time that the wall got completed from the time he was commissioned by King Artaxerxes, all right? And uh, we know that it took 52 days from Nehemiah chapter number 6, verse number 15. So that would have left roughly, once you take five months, you subtract 52 days, that leaves roughly about three months from the time that Nehemiah was commissioned to the time that he started the wall. Most of that time would have been used to travel. Now, we don't know exactly the route he took. I mean, he could have gone through the, uh, most of the travel in that day would have actually gone out of the way. He would have followed what was called the Fertile Crescent, which would have taken him much longer to get there, but it would be a much safer route rather than cutting straight across the desert, which would have been somewhat dangerous dangerous in the day and age in which we which he lived and so the most common most commentators and scholars believe it took him roughly two and a half to three months to make that journey so it says here in verse number 11 so i came he was willing to be moved he's willing to be displaced was there three days notice verse number 12 and he says i arose in the night and some few men with me neither told i any man what god had put in my heart what this holy discontentment he says, I, I didn't tell any man. He said, it, just, it was just there. He said, I didn't bring beast with me, save the beast that rode upon him. I mean, I want you to see what's happening now. At this point, literally, it's the middle of the night, and he's just so burdened. You can, you can see this holy discontentment escalating in his soul as now he gets to Jerusalem to the point where now it's the middle of the night, and he's just, he's just got to get out there. And so uh, the Bible says here as he moves through verse number 12, he says, uh, verse 13, and I went out by night by the gate of the valley. So this would have been the southern portion of Jerusalem. And then it says he he continued to make his way out toward the walls of Jerusalem, and it says to the dung port. I don't need to get into a whole lot of exposition as to what would have been happening at this particular gate in the city. I think you get the idea. So he travels along. He goes through the Valley of Kidron there, and he makes his way up north. And so it starts heading, and he, he moves to, uh, it says in verse 14, I went to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool. And this would have been the gate where the water from the mountain would have flowed into the city of Jerusalem. And he gets to that portion, and now he's looking down on the city. And he says here in verse number 13, this is where he sees the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof, they're literally consumed with fire. It says here, but there was no place, verse 14, for the for the beast that was under me to pass. So he gets to this portion where those gates were, and it was literally impossible for the beast that he was riding on, whether it was that little uh, donkey or whatever the case might be, it literally couldn't walk through because the rubble of the city was so broken down. It was literally nowhere to go. And so at this point, Nehemiah is literally just looking at the city, and you can just see this discontentment burning here within him. And you see what begins to happen, and I I want you to see as he's walking around the city, you can almost imagine maybe he's looking, and maybe he even reaches down and puts some of that soil in his hand. It's not enough for him to have simply heard about the brokenness that existed in Jerusalem. It wasn't enough even just to get there. Now we're going to see where Nehemiah begins to 
get involved in making an impact himself, which leads us here to our final thought this morning, and that is this. A holy discontentment will demand a personal involvement. You say, how do I know when it's a holy discontentment as opposed to just a, I'm just annoyed? Because, I, mean, I mean, there's a lot of places you look at things and you know I'm, there's a holy discontentment. And, and sometimes there's brokenness in the world and it's not a holy discontentment. You just got a bad attitude. <laughs> so how do you know the difference when it's a holy discontentment and when you just have a bad attitude? One of the ways you know whether it's just a bad attitude or whether it's a truly holy discontentment is because there's a humility to actually get involved. To do something about it yourself. If you're not willing to personally get involved, if the grace of God is not doing something in your heart and life to do something personally about it, you don't have a holy discontentment. you got a bad attitude. (laughs) And this is where Nehemiah wasn't content with simply, you know, do this and do that or, or just simply praying or just simply planning. There was a personal involvement that got involved here. James 1.22 reminds us, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. There comes a point where when the the holy discontentment is stirring in our lives that it forces us to do something about it personally. We can't wait for somebody else to do it. And whether it's in the community, whether within the context of a local church, whether it's in our marriage with our kids, there are going to be areas where the Spirit of God reveals some things that are just not right because we live in a broken world, because we live in a world that's been marred by sin and wickedness. Because of that, God wants to use us like he used Nehemiah to literally be conduits of his grace, to bring about restoration, to bring about redemption, to bring about healing in the world in which we live. But a holy uh, discontentment will demand a personal involvement. I'll, I'll remind you of this, that all the beautiful sentiments in the world weigh less than a single loving action. And so when it comes to this holy discontentment, oh, that we would ask God for the grace that we need Not just to empathize with the situation, but to ask God, God, how do you want my life to impact? How do you want my life to be used in this situation to make a difference? And so whether it's somebody like Nehemiah 500 years before the time of Christ, or whether it's somebody like a Blake in the day and age in which we live, there are seasons where a holy discontentment will arise within us. But how does one respond to this holy discontentment? We, we, we just move toward it. When the Spirit of God's moving, and that doesn't necessarily all, always mean geographically, but it's in our spirit, in our soul, we move toward that. Yes, we recognize there might be some opposition, but it will cause us to seek the welfare of other people and demand a personal a personal involvement. So here's our takeaway, and we'll wrap it up today. I want to encourage you today to allow, to allow your holy discontentment to drive you to make a holy difference. What, what is that area where the Spirit of God is stirring up a holy discontentment in you? Maybe it's something in your marriage. It's just, you know something's not right. It's broken. And you're not, you're not, you're no longer okay with it. 
Like there was a season you're like, oh, it is what it is, you know, but you, you just, there's a, there's a holy discontentment. You're just, you're not all right with it. You realize it's broken. Maybe it's in another area of your life. Maybe it has to do with your family. Maybe it has to do with something that you see in the community around us. But can I encourage you to allow this holy discontentment to drive you to make a holy difference? Can I encourage you to surrender to that? To yield to it and allow God to do His perfect work. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.